Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. The following podcast is an interview with Nakchon Rinpoche and Troma Rigsal in Alameda, California in March 2010. Interview questions cover various topics from the book Rays of the Sun. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist Tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. Your generous donations make these podcasts possible. If you wish to make a donation, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help and select Make a Donation. I'm Troma Rixel, and I'm here with Nocturne Rinpoche. We are discussing the topics in his recent book, Rays of the Sun, which is actually a collection of teachings that he had written and distributed 20 years ago when Dharma was first coming to the West. Rinpoche, thank you for being here today. I'm really excited to ask you this first question, which is, about the place that people first come to the Buddhist teachings, which is the Four Noble Truths. And you talk about the Four Noble Truths as the four certainties Mm. in Rays of the Sun. So could you describe the Four Noble Truths according to this way, the four certainties, and why that term certainty is used? Certainty is... um, I moved away from calling them the Four Noble Truths because that, uh, the language has, uh, has a particular quality to it that I didn't really feel um, addressed people mm. in terms of something uh, specific about their experience. So I use the word certainty there because it it links directly with having an understanding that is unshakable because you really know it, something of which you are certain. Mm. Uh, A noble truth, however poetic that term is, well, I don't understand it as a Western person. Mm. I'm not noble. (laughs) I'm working class. So the whole word noble doesn't necessarily mean anything to me, apart from the Queen and Prince Philip Mm. and uh, Prince Charles, (laughs) etc. They're noble. I'm one of the lumpen proletariat. So um, then your truth is another question, because uh, Buddhism is not a religion of truth, it's a religion of method. And so a noble truth is, I'd rather say that was uh, a certainty. Mm. I know what that is, I've experienced that, Mm. I've tasted that. Mm. Like for me a certainty is that uh, Mexican food is an oxymoron. It's horrible. I I know some people love it, and that's great for them, but for me it's horrible. I'm certain of that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So there are all kinds of certainties, you know. But, um, you know, this goes beyond that into a direct experience of life, Um, something that's undeniable if you actually look at it. And it's undeniable for everyone. Would it? Would you say the four certainties are certain for every person? No, it only applies to the person who's actually practicing. Mm. I think that they're totally uncertain for anyone who's never approached them in that way. Um, they're uncertain for anyone who wants to deny them for whatever reason. Mm. Um, I think we all have an idea of how we'd like life to be. Mm. There's how it ought to be, how we prefer it to be. And it's really only those who look at life and are prepared to understand something hard about it. Mm. Things like having to die. That's a relatively hard fact for people, and um, people would 
often rather avoid hard facts. Not that death is, is hard when you come to understand it, but for most people it's, it's a highly unpleasant idea. And so would, would the four certainties be four hard facts then? The sort of facts of life and that kind of... Well, they start out hard and they, they improve as they go on because the, uh, the first thing is the acknowledgement of unsatisfactoriness uh, as the major characteristic mm. that we all experience, you know, to whatever degree. And that would be what usually people hear of as all of life is suffering. Yes. So why is it usually put that way? I think that that's the most popular notion of what Buddhism is about. People hear that. Yes, suffering is not a good word. Um, Unsatisfactoriness certainly can be suffering. Mm -hmm. Uh, It can be extreme suffering. But it can also be extremely mild. Mm -hmm. It can be the subtlest inconvenience. You know, the the sky is not quite the right shade of blue, or the temperature is a little too hot or a little too cold. So it's a spread. If you describe it as suffering, um, then I think a lot of people would not be interested in Buddhism. And why follow a religion that tells you that everything is suffering? I wouldn't. It wouldn't interest me. Um, um, And so this is not a useful translation because obviously, you know, there's also a lot of joy to be had, Mm. um, which, uh, you know, is part of the definition of unsatisfactoriness, you know, in terms of alternation. Mm. You know, it's the alternation that makes it worse because you know that, you know, better times are possible. And so there's the contrast that exists there. But... Unsatisfactoriness is the whole spread between the most extreme form of suffering and the mildest irritation or inconvenience. And so what would be the path out of that unsatisfactoriness? And besides the, the teaching of the Eightfold Path, is there some other concise way that you could explain that to us? I mean, if that's what Buddhism offers, a path out of unsatisfactoriness, what is that? Well, it's the recognition of what causes it. Okay. You know, which is the next thing, that there is a cause. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're looking at a situation and saying, uh, you know, you you say, right, life, life is characterized by unsatisfactoriness to one degree or another, even including joy as uh, you know as the problem with alternation you know mm-hmm. that that one is always in search of that and either you're getting it for a while then losing it or missing it or um, then one has to look at the cause that there is a cause and if there is a cause then there's something that you can do in terms of how that is caused, to unroot that cause. So there is a possibility, this is the third noble truth or the Mm. third certainty, Uh, but it's a matter of seeing it. Mm. So it's always a matter of of looking and being open to what is there. If you don't acknowledge the situation, you can't even start to look for a cause because you're trying to um, pretend that life is uh, something else or that life is uh, splendid if only we could change the government or if only we could change this or fix that or do the other thing, it would be perfect. If you're coming from that situation, then you can never really arrive at a situation where you're open to looking for the cause of something. Um, most people have the idea that life could be better if their political party could stay in power 
and make all the changes necessary and get rid of all the people who shouldn't be there and mm. have the rest in prison or wherever. Um, but from the point of view of uh, Buddhism, uh, any form of politics is a means of adjusting samsara. And uh, it is only ever adjustable. There's never any answer in that. So the answer can only be in understanding how we work and why we do what we do. And as soon as you understand the cause, you also understand how it doesn't have to be like that. That's automatic. It, it comes with the understanding of the cause. And would that be then, you mentioned that there was some pain of the alternation of, of joy and, and unsatisfactoriness or joy and sorrow or whatever kinds of ups and downs people go through. There's some frustration that comes from that. Is there... In being free from unsatisfactoriness, does that necessarily mean that we would be free from those ups and downs? Or I think that that's something that a lot of people coming to Eastern spirituality of all sorts get that idea. And is that is that what's going to happen? Will we be happy all the time, Rinpoche? <laughs> that would be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, um, it's not a question of being free of joy and sorrow. I think that's a misunderstanding. Um, joy and sorrow is there. You know, obviously, if you have a good friend and that good friend dies, that is sad. And I think there's a misunderstanding that, uh, you know, when you get enlightened or whatever, that you no longer feel any sadness. If you, if you don't feel sadness, then you have no connection with anything. There's feeling sadness as a simple, raw condition, and then there's feeling sadness as a complex project mm. where the sadness means certain things. But sadness doesn't mean any more than it is. Um, I was talking to somebody who was asking uh, about sadness a couple of weeks back. They were sad. Um, I won't go into why, but um, I said, well, I'm still sad that uh, my friends Ron and Steve died. And that's about 40 years ago. I'm no less sad now than I was then, but it doesn't dominate my experience. Right. Uh, if I think of them, I feel sad. That's not a problem. I don't resent feeling sad. That I feel sad doesn't mean anything more than my connection with them, my memory of them, and there's nothing you can do to remove that loss. But that's not tragic. It's not so complicated. It's very simple. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about them all the time. Mm -hmm. But it's not that I no longer feel sad. And as long as someone is looking for a cure for that, it will be unsatisfactory. <laughs> So there's no state of uh, such advanced happiness that there is no uh, sadness, because that would be entirely bland, mm. and you would become emotionless, right. and you would become English, <laughs> because that's what we're like. <laughs> we feel nothing. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people who, who would like to be bland. I think that's one of the peculiar attractions of Buddhism for certain people. Mm. 
because they resent pain to such a degree that they want out. And uh, the best answer for that is actually heroin. <laughs> if you want to feel nothing, then get yourself medicated. Uh, not that I'm offering that as a viable alternative, but you know, if blandness is what you want to feel nothing, then then sedation is the answer. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I never thought of it like that. That it's actually an attraction to not feeling anything mm. when people have that view. You were talking about truth and method, and I've heard you speak on this subject before, and I'm interested for you to explain to us what is the difference for a practitioner in approaching Buddhism as a religion of method rather than a religion of truth, and what would that mean for how we would relate to the Buddhist teachings? Well, I think one important thing is that if you understand Buddhism as a religion of method, there is no uh, opportunity for sectarianism. Mm, wow. Uh, because you understand the different vehicles, what the principle and function of each mm. is, and therefore you understand that even though things that are expressed are different, that they're not in conflict with each other. Like you know, uh, whether you wear a, whether you wear a bikini or a fur coat, depends on the temperature <laughs> and what you intend to do. Yeah. Uh, they seem to contradict each other, but they are four different purposes. Mm. Um, so, the different yanas, e you know, with each yana, the, uh, there's a principle, and you're following a teaching according to that principle. I think the difficulty for a lot of people in, in the idea of method lies in the fact that method sounds practical, like a method of meditation, a visualization, a mantra, etc. But it becomes more subtle when uh, you encounter the fact that a view is a method also, how you view things. Mm -hmm. So uh, view slips into the area of truth. Mm -hmm. And if it does, there's a problem with it. Oh. Because however you view things, um, you know, for example, at one thing uh, that I think confuses a lot of people is uh, the idea that you know you can be a bodhisattva and you can renounce enlightenment until all other beings are enlightened. Okay. Now, if you analyze that, it's it's not actually feasible because enlightenment or is the non-dual state, which we all have from beginninglessness. Mm -hmm. So in terms of entering into the non-dual state, how do you actually postpone that? Mm. If you had the capacity to postpone it, you'd already be there. Right. So how do you postpone it? And having that view that I will renounce realization until all beings are realized, you'd be realized anyway if you had that wish. Mm. And um, we couldn't however, renounce it anyway because it's our nature? Yes, that it's our nature, so how can we renounce mm. it? But the thing is here, you know, uh, I'm not criticizing that. <laughs> what I'm saying is that it's a method. Mm. And... The method is extremely important in terms of sutrayana because we're looking at samsara as an ocean of suffering. Mm. Now, if samsara is an ocean of suffering, then I want out. And if I really recognize that, then I want out uh, extremely. I extremely want out. <laughs> um, and so to say, well, I'll stay in until everyone else is out, 
is is obviously something that's going to turn everything on its head. So it's a method of of working uh, to cultivate that degree of self disinterest is really important when the self is a big issue. So to recognize anatman, no atman, is, is really important as part of that. So if you understand how sutrayana works, you can see how the bodhisattva ideal works as a method within that. But then it is a method, it's not a truth. So throughout the Buddhist yanas, there is always this... Uh, with each yana, there's a change of method. And that methods seem to conflict with each other unless you understand the principle. Mm. And, you know, it actually goes a lot further than that in terms of being able to look at other religions. It's not just understanding Buddhism, but understanding every other religion. Not that you have to study them, not that there's any purpose in trying to understand them, but you can have a state of mind in which there's no conflict because you see them all as methods. Uh, you know, if you see someone who is practicing another religion, say it's a theistic religion, as almost all the others are, you can say, well, I can see the purpose of theism. It helps a person with this kind of temperament. Mm -hmm. And that applies to fundamentalism, it applies to everything, that there's a certain kind of person who's benefited by that approach. So even if the approach is actually problematic in some ways, if it's helpful, if something moves someone from, from here to there, and they improve as a human being, they become more open, more compassionate, then that's useful. Even if it doesn't supposedly lead beyond a certain point. Well, with this notion then, actually I, I have to ask you a question about that then because even though it's off topic, something that comes up in and my own sangha in particular is this question of the relationship between Buddhism and psychology. And here I think I heard you say that if something is helping someone to be more compassionate, then mm -hmm. and it's benefiting them, then it's a useful thing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, I know that you have taught many times on the subject of Buddhist psychology and spoken at conferences on the topic and what is the relationship between a Buddhist practitioner's life and psychology? There's a lot of Buddhists out there who are psychologists or even training to be psychologists mm -hmm. and, and how does that work in terms of Buddhism being a refuge in their practice? being their refuge rather than psychology being their refuge? Is there a conflict there? Or if it's something that benefits them, that's at the end of the story. Um, that's a large question. Yeah. Um, refuge, uh, which is the last thing you mentioned, maybe mm -hmm. I should just go in that way. Um, there's only a problem in terms of refuge if you take the reality of psychotherapy uh, to be more important than the refuge of Dharma. Mm. Now, psychotherapy can certainly be useful for people, but it depends on what premises it's based. So although it can serve, uh, well, I, it, psychotherapy, there are many different mm -hmm. kinds, many ideas, many theories and philosophies of being that underpin it. Um, I think in terms of Dharma, um, we have different ideas about what being is. Mm -hmm. And so th there are certain conflicts in terms of view. I think in terms of practice, um, it depends on the style of psychotherapy. Mm. 
that's being employed. I mean, I, I, I've worked not as a psychotherapist, but in mm. Britain, what we uh, call a counsellor, mm. which is more or less the same thing. Um, and so I've helped people in terms of their emotional states. Um, I think I'd need to know more about psychotherapy before I said much more. Um, I think that I might have to tell a story here. Please uh, do. There were two ladies who became apprentices of contradiction and myself. Um, I never really thought that they were suitable in particular, but um, they were referred by somebody else who thought that they were eminently suitable. And uh, they came to a retreat. They were friends. Um, I'd noticed that they kept to themselves a great deal. That mm. They didn't really speak to anybody else. and. I thought this was vaguely problematic. So uh, there was another lady of about their age, and um, I happened to meet them one lunchtime. And I said, look, I'd like you two to go off for a walk with Babette and you know, talk to each other, you know, you know, um, explain yourselves to each other, you know, <laughs> who you are, you know, and come back friends. you know." About 20 minutes later, I find the two ladies in tears in the garden. And I said, what's, what's wrong? And they said, um, um, this is you know, completely against the principles of psychotherapy to do a thing like this. Mm. And um, you know, I said, well, just ask you to go for a walk and come back <laughs> friends. I don't what's the problem there? And, um, I had to explain to them, well, you know, I I'd never said I was working according to the rules of psychotherapy, whatever they may be. Mm -hmm. This is not psychotherapy. Mm. You know, so this might not be what you want at all. You know, this is Dharma, this is not psychotherapy. So that whatever the rules are there, what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do has no application here. I'm sorry that you're upset, but it has nothing to do with me in particular. You know, my intentions were friendly. If you didn't want to do that, then really I can't help you much either, because as far as I'm concerned, that was quite a simple and good-natured request, and, and there's no threat in that for anyone. If you find a threat there, then I would say that you know, Dharma is not for you at all because it can get a lot more threatening than that. <laughs> <laughs> Again, in a very friendly way in particular, but if that threatens you, then I, I don't know what to say beyond that. Mm. Um, so I think you know, there are certain principles involved with either, mm. but that if you take refuge, uh, which means... Um, uh, Again, taking refuge is a whole other area. What refuge means? Mm -hmm. Refuge means um, uh, the baseline. Mm -hmm. What you found everything upon. Mm -hmm. What you understand as being real. And so if you have refuge, then you'll go to that, whatever that is. You know, if your refuge is heroin, you go to heroin. Mm. If your refuge is overeating, then you go to overeating. And you'll always go there first, whatever that is. Mm. Whatever gives you comfort or, or whatever is your real refuge. And you might pretend it's Buddhism. Mm. But if you don't go there for help when you need it, then it's not your refuge. Which doesn't mean that if you take refuge, you can't have psychotherapy. It doesn't mean that at all. But it is, it is a method, like you go to a doctor. I mean, a doctor isn't necessarily a, a Buddhist. 
<laughs> but if you've got a boil, I say, I've got a boil. I've got a problem with this boil. Can you get rid of this boil? Mm -hmm. you know, that's, so you get rid of it. Um, you're hungry, you eat, and you have to do all kinds of things. But um, It's interesting, the notion of refuge being this baseline of, of acknowledging something you find to be real, and then the Four Noble Truths, that teaching actually being translated or rephrased as the Four Certainties, it seems to me like entering into the Buddhist path then is entering into a state of greater confidence in some way, or it yeah. comes from some kind of confidence. Would mm. you say that that's yeah. the case? I can't remember which teacher said this, but he described them as the no bull truths. <laughs> <laughs> there was no nonsense about them. There was nothing airy-fairy uh, about them. They're not particularly comforting, uh, but then life is not particularly comforting either. Uh, I mean, it can be, but um, you know, there are some facts that however good it is, you're going to die. Um, however good it is, you might get ill. However well you are, your friends might get ill, um, which is not a particularly um, depressing state of affairs. It's simply how it is. Mm -hmm. And if you accept how it is, it can be quite joyful. And you can appreciate what you appreciate at the time. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. I never thought of it like that, that it's actually an attraction to not feeling anything mm. when people have that view. Ramesha, you were talking about truth and method, and I've heard you speak on this subject before, and I'm interested for you to explain to us what is the difference for a practitioner in approaching Buddhism as a religion of method rather than a religion of truth, and what would that mean for how we would relate to the Buddhist teachings? Well, I think one important thing is that if you understand Buddhism as a religion of method, there is no uh, opportunity for sectarianism. Mm, wow. Uh, because you understand the different vehicles, what the principle and function of each mm. is, and therefore you understand that even though things that are expressed are different, that they're not in conflict with each other. Like you know, uh, whether you wear a, whether you wear a bikini or a fur coat depends on the temperature <laughs> and what you intend to do. Yeah. Uh, they seem to contradict each other, but they are four different purposes. Mm. Um, so, the different yanas, you know, with each yana, the, uh, there's a principle, and you're following a teaching according to that principle. I think the difficulty for a lot of people in, in the idea of method lies in the fact that method sounds practical, like a method of meditation, a visualization, a mantra, etc. But it becomes more subtle when uh, you encounter the fact that a view is a method also, how you view things. Mm -hmm. So uh, view slips into the area of truth, mm -hmm. and if it does, there's a problem with it. Um. Because however you view things, um, you know, for example, at one thing uh, that I think confuses a lot of people is uh, the idea that you know you can be a bodhisattva and you can renounce enlightenment until all other beings are enlightened. Okay. Now, if you analyze that, it's it's not actually feasible because enlightenment or is the non-dual state, which we all have from beginninglessness. Mm -hmm. 
So in terms of entering into the non-dual state, how do you actually postpone that? Mm. If you had the capacity to postpone it, you'd already be there. So how do you postpone it? And having that view that I will renounce realization until all beings are realized, you'd be realized anyway if you had that wish. Mm. And um, we couldn't however, renounce it anyway because it's our nature? Yes, that it's our nature, so how can we renounce mm. it? But the thing is here, you know, uh, I'm not criticizing that. What I'm saying is that it's a method, mm -hmm. and the method is extremely important in terms of sutrayana because we're looking at samsara as an ocean of suffering. Mm -hmm. Now, if samsara is an ocean of suffering, then I want out. And if I really recognize that, then I want out uh, extremely. I extremely want out. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and so to say, well, I'll stay in until everyone else is out is, is obviously something that's going to turn everything on its head. So it's a method of, of working mm -hmm. uh, to cultivate that degree of self-disinterest is really important when the self is a big issue. So to recognize anatman, no atman, is, is really important as part of that. So if you understand how sutrayana works, you can see how the bodhisattva ideal works as a method within that. But then it is a method, it's not a truth. So throughout the Buddhist yanas, there is always this, uh, uh, with each yana, there's a change of method. Mm -hmm. And that methods seem to conflict with each other unless you understand the principle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it actually goes a lot further than that in terms of being able to look at other religions. It's not just understanding Buddhism, but understanding every other religion. Not that you have to study them, not that there's any purpose in trying to understand them, but you can have a state of mind in which there's no conflict because you see them all as methods. Uh, you know, if you see someone who is practicing another religion, say it's a theistic religion, as almost all the others are, you can say, well, I can see the purpose of theism. It helps a person with this kind of temperament. Mm -hmm. And that applies to fundamentalism, it applies to everything, that there's a certain kind of person who's benefited by that approach. So even if the approach is actually problematic in some ways, if it's helpful, if something moves someone from, from here to there, and they improve as a human being, they become more open, more compassionate, then that's useful. Mm. Even if it doesn't supposedly lead beyond a certain point. Mm. Well, with this notion then, actually I, I have to ask you a question about that then because even though it's off topic, something that comes up in and my own sangha in particular is this question of the relationship between Buddhism and psychology. And here I think I heard you say that if something is helping someone to be more compassionate, then mm -hmm. and it's benefiting them, then it's a useful thing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, I know that you have taught many times on the subject of Buddhist psychology and spoken at conferences on the topic. And what is the relationship between a Buddhist practitioner's life and psychology? There's a lot of Buddhists out there who are psychologists or even training to be psychologists. Mm -hmm. and, and how does that work in terms of Buddhism being a refuge uh, in their practice? 
being their refuge rather than psychology being their refuge? Is there a conflict there? Or if it's something that benefits them, that's at the end of the story. Um, that's a large question. Yeah. Um, refuge, uh, which is the last thing you mentioned, maybe mm -hmm. I should just go in that way. Um, there's only a problem in terms of refuge if you take the reality of psychotherapy uh, to be more important than the refuge of Dharma. Mm. Now, psychotherapy can certainly be useful for people, but it depends on what premises it's based. Mm. So although it can serve, uh, well, I, it, psychotherapy, there are many different mm. kinds, many ideas, many theories and philosophies of being that underpin it. Um, I think in terms of Dharma, um, we have different ideas about what being is. Mm. And so th there are certain conflicts in terms of view. I think in terms of practice, um, it depends on the style of psychotherapy that's being employed. I mean, I, I, I've worked not as a psychotherapist, but in mm. Britain, what we uh, call a counselor, mm. which is more or less the same thing. Um, and so I've helped people in terms of their emotional states. Um, I think I'd need to know more about psychotherapy before I said much more. Um, I think that I might have to tell a story here. Please uh, do. There were two ladies who became apprentices of contradiction and myself. Um, I never really thought that they were suitable in particular, but um, they were referred by somebody else who thought that they were eminently suitable. And uh, they came to a retreat. They were friends. Um, I'd noticed that they kept to themselves a great deal. Mm. They didn't really speak to anybody else. and. I thought this was vaguely problematic. So uh, there was another lady of about their age, and um, I happened to meet them one lunchtime. And I said, look, I'd like you to, to go off for a walk with Babette and you know, talk to each other, you know, you know, um, explain yourselves to each other, you know, <laughs> who you are, you know, and come back friends. You know? About 20 minutes later, I find the two ladies in tears in the garden. And I said, what's, what's wrong? And they said, um, um, this is you know, completely against the principles of psychotherapy to do a thing like this. Mm. And um, you know, I said, well, just ask you to go for a walk and come back <laughs> friends. <laughs> I don't what's the problem there? And, um, I, I had to explain to them, well, you know, I n I'd never said I was working according to the rules of psychotherapy, whatever they may be. Mm -hmm. This is not psychotherapy. Mm. You know, so this might not be what you want at all. You know, this is Dharma, this is not psychotherapy. So that whatever the rules are there, what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do has no application here. I'm sorry that you're upset, but it has nothing to do with me in particular. You know, my intentions were friendly. If you didn't want to do that, then really I can't help you much either, because as far as I'm concerned, that was quite a simple and good-natured request, and, and there's no threat in that for anyone. If you find a threat there, then I would say that you know, Dharma is not for you at all because uh, it can get a lot more threatening than that. <laughs> <laughs> Again, in a very friendly way in particular, but if that threatens you, then I, I don't know what to say beyond that. 
Um, so I think you know there are certain principles involved with either, mm. but that if you take refuge, uh, which means um, uh, again taking refuge is a whole other area. What refuge means? Mm -hmm. Refuge means um, uh, the baseline. Mm -hmm. What you found everything upon. Mm -hmm. What you understand as being real. And so, if you have refuge, then you'll go to that, whatever that is. You know, if your refuge is heroin, you go to heroin. If you're Refuge is overeating, then you go to overeating. And you'll always go there first, whatever that is. Mm. Whatever gives you comfort or, or whatever is your real refuge. And you might pretend it's Buddhism. Mm. But if you don't go there for help when you need it, then it's not your refuge. Mm. Which doesn't mean that if you take refuge, you can't have psychotherapy it doesn't mean that at all but it is it is a method like you go to a doctor I mean a doctor isn't necessarily a, a Buddhist <laughs> but if you've got a boil I say I've got a boil I've got a problem with this boil can you get rid of this boil you know that's so you get rid of it um, you're hungry you eat and you have to do all kinds of things but um, it's interesting the notion of refuge being this baseline of, of acknowledging something you find to be real and then the Four Noble Truths, that teaching actually being translated or rephrased as the Four Certainties. It seems to me like entering into the Buddha's path then is entering into a state of greater confidence in some way or it yeah. comes from some kind of confidence. Would mm. you say that that's yeah. the case? I can't remember which teacher said this, but he described them as the no bull truths. <laughs> <laughs> there was no nonsense about them. There was nothing airy-fairy uh, about them. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> They're not particularly comforting. Mm. Uh, but then life is not particularly comforting either. Mm. I mean, it can be, but, um, you know, there are some facts that however good it is, you're going to die. Mm. Um, however good it is, you might get ill. Mm -hmm. However well you are, your friends might get ill. Um, which is not a particularly... Um, depressing state of affairs. It's simply how it is. Mm -hmm. And if you accept how it is, it can be quite joyful. And you can appreciate what you appreciate at the time. Mm 